Well, C.S. Lewis once famously said, quote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight, end quote. This quote comes from the preface to Lewis's work titled The Screwtape Letters. This book is actually a compilation of letters recording an insightful correspondence between Screwtape, who is a senior demon in hell, and his incompetent nephew Wormwood, who's a wet-behind-the-years young tempter. All of the letters are from Screwtape to Wormwood and have as their subject a man in England recently converted to Christianity, known simply as the patient. And Screwtape writes often to Wormwood over the years, giving him advice on how to tempt and and snare and trip up the patient's faith. Now, early on, the patient is growing in spirituality. Knowing that cannot be stopped, Screwtape advises Wormwood to corrupt his spirituality with intellectualism, to whisper thoughts into his ear that Jesus is not really divine, but a mere historical figure. Though the patient does not deny Christ, he's successful in creating a great deal of spiritual pride in the patient. Soon thereafter, World War II breaks out in England, and Screwtape rejoices at the potential death of his patient. But Screwtape tells him it's better to keep him alive, because then he will succumb to the wasteland of middle age. As his youthful hopes vanish, so will his faith. Or if the patient becomes successful and prosperous, all the better. This will only cement him in worldly concerns and remove all the need of God in his life. Their goal is to increase attachment to earthly concerns, and this only becomes easier with the patient's age. In the end, the demons hope that when the patient sees the remains of a human body in a bombed-out house, he will see life for what it really is, just a meaningless house of horrors and abandon all faith. But just the opposite happens. The patient comes to greater faith, And in that moment, the demons know their patient is forever out of their reach. And Wormwood has failed, and as a result, Screwtape will consume him. For he says, quote, The justice of hell is purely realistic and concerned only with results. Bring us back food or be food yourself. End quote. Now, all of this is, of course, fictional, but unlike the Chronicles of Narnia from Lewis, the Screwtape letters reflects a very real world, of angels and demons, and spiritual warfare. An unseen world of demons does exist, and their mission, much like that of young Wormwood, is to blind the minds of the unbelieving, keeping them from salvation, and to weaken the faith of the saved, to to render them ineffective. And for the past few weeks here, we've taken a detour from our normal course, going through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, taking a little break to study this unseen world of demons. Matthew's gospel has been our inspiration, though, for we see many encounters of demons and demon possession in the life, the ministry of Christ. Seeing this unworld become unmasked, though, brings up so many questions. And when you combine that with the widespread ignorance around in our culture today concerning demons, well, we just had to do a little Bible study of our own as to what the Bible really says about demons. Let me set the record straight. So that's what we've been up to for a couple weeks. We're going to finish that this morning. And so far, using a, a Q&A format, we've covered 12 Bible-based question and answers about demons. This morning, we're going to add three more. The goal here 
just to ground us in the truth of God's word. Not man's superstition or experience, but what has God actually revealed about this real unseen world and how do we take into consideration? We're trying to make better sense of spiritual warfare and also better appreciate the ministry of Christ as we see it in the Gospels, so much of which comes in contrast to the activity of demons. Now this time I do want to start off with a quick recap Because especially if you weren't here the past one or two weeks, you will be very lost, very confused. To get back up to speed, though, what what have we learned so far about what the Bible says about demons? We started off with what demons are. And biblically, demons are angels. They're fallen angels, to be exact, who rebelled against God and persist in that rebellion against God, man, and the truth. For believers, demons can externally oppress them, like Wormwood and his patient, But they cannot rob you of your salvation. They cannot possess you. Now that in turn brought us to this huge related topic of demon possession. This is where a demon is indwelling a person in control. Irresistible. Which is why a type of deliverance is needed. Such possession only applies to the unregenerate. Not surprisingly though, we we know Jesus has the power to deliver people. And he often did so with just a word. Casting out the demon. He delegated that same power and authority to his representatives on earth, the apostles who did the same thing. But we found that nobody today has that same power or authority, just like no one today is healing people like Jesus did. These sign gifts serve the purpose of authenticating the apostles as Christ's messengers, as well as their message. That authority now rests with scripture. But although the apostles are gone, demon possession still remains. So if if we can't do what Jesus did, what are we to do? Well, most people would answer this question with exorcism. You ask most people, like, if you encounter a demon-possessed person, what are you supposed to do? And they would probably say, well, you know, perform an exorcism. And so for the past week or last week especially, really tackled that subtopic An exorcism is some ceremony or ritual involving incantations or artifacts designed to to drive out demons. And this concept has really been ingrained in our minds, especially with popular culture. Every movie that comes out seems to promote this idea. Again, if you ask the average person, how do you deal with demons? They would say what they learned from Hollywood. You, You perform an exorcism. But we found in our study of the scriptures, exorcisms are not biblical. It's not taught in the Bible anywhere. Jesus was not an exorcist, and Jesus and the apostles did not perform a single exorcism. Yes, they they cast out demons with authority, with a single command. Yes, they did that, but you have to see the vast difference between that and what passes for exorcism today. They're very different. In reality, the the ritual of exorcism is a pagan practice that some try to make legitimate through a mishandling of Scripture. The idea of performing some ritual or incantation, even throwing around the name of Jesus like it's a magic charm, that is wrong. It should be avoided. Nothing like exorcism is ever prescribed anywhere in Scripture. We should have nothing to do with it. Now, we finished up last time, though, talking about people who have had these vivid experiences with Satan and demons or with exorcisms and that they base all their beliefs on their personal experience. And so we just finished giving a caution about letting experience be your guide. 
I don't necessarily doubt people's experiences, but I do ask and question, how can you be sure that experience came from God? Can you prove it's from God? We know experiences can be wrong. They can be deceiving. God's word can't. We should stick with that. Well, that's where we ended last time. We spent most of our time debunking all of the wrong ways people understand and respond to demons and possession. But we left unanswered what the Bible actually says about spiritual warfare. And today we're going to wrap this up. We're going to fill in what God prescribes for you concerning spiritual warfare in his word. Because after all we studied, demons are real. Demon possession is real. Spiritual warfare is real. But what does God actually expect us to do about it? What are we actually told in his word to do about these things? Well, if that interests you, these last three questions will help you. So let's carry on now and finish this up. We have what we're going to call question 13. We're making a cumulative list. So we covered 12 questions already. Let's call this question 13. Kind of picking up from last time, but question 13. How do you identify demon possession? Just kind of wrap up the discussion on demon possession. How do you identify demon possession? And I would contend that much of what passes for spiritual warfare and exorcisms today can be explained by a false diagnosis. Too many people are too quick to attribute everything bad to Satan and demons. So you have many people, they deal with the Christian life and their problems by just rebuking the evil spirit of depression or fear or anxiety or addiction or anger. It's, it's a demon's fault. Personal responsibility and repentance are eliminated from the discussion. And all of your vices are to blame on some demon, which must be called out by name and rebuked. But do you think you get anything like this from the Bible? No, there's nowhere in the Bible. Scripture overwhelmingly puts the blame for sinful behavior on us, like on on the wicked desires of our flesh, not on Satan and demons. They can certainly tempt, but they, they don't make anybody sin. You should be very leery of those who look for demons under every rock and make demons to blame for everything. But we keep saying, you know, that being said, demons are real, possession is real. And since we're dealing with a world that is unseen, we are left completely at the mercy of what God has revealed to us about this. Let's just go with that. What has God revealed? When it comes to demon possession then, what has scripture said about, how do we even identify it? We don't want to be guilty of false diagnosis. So how do we identify it? Let's first reaffirm that you don't identify demon possession by sickness alone. We say it often, but we have to, that not all sickness is demon-related. Bible is very clear about that. Most seems like it's not. It's just a result of living in a fallen world. You, you get sick. And, and back in Christ's day, they fully understood the difference between the sick and the possessed. They just weren't all like superstitious. They did not have our medical knowledge, but it's not like they attributed everything unknown to a demon. They seem to know the difference. Also, you don't identify demon possession by sinfulness. In Galatians 5, for example, the Apostle Paul gives a long list of of wicked deeds which even believers can commit. And who is responsible for these sins? Who is to blame? Is this some demon making you do these things? No, Paul argues it's just, it's just you. It's your flesh, your sin nature. These are called deeds of the flesh, not deeds of the devil, deeds of the flesh. They come from desires of the flesh. That's you. 
And so if you see some particularly depraved person, it does not mean that they must be demon-possessed. Demon possession is not just sickness. It's not just sinfulness. And so then, what is it? How do we identify it? Well, here we are again. The Bible does not explicitly tell us how to identify it. There's very little on it. However, by studying its occurrences in the Bible, we can assemble some indicators. All we have to go by is what the Bible reveals, the biblical pattern. So let's do that. Demon possession, it's only mentioned 14 distinct times across four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. From these occurrences, we kind of put together three indicators of demon possession. So what are these three indicators? Well, the first indicator is some kind of physical affliction or ailment, which is often extreme. Say again, demons are not responsible for all forms of sickness or all sickness. But that being said, when a person was demon-possessed in the Bible, we do almost always see them with some accompanying physical affliction. Demons brought about muteness, blindness, deafness, dumbness, seizures, self-mutilation. It appears that the residing demon was seeking the harm of its host. And so, for example, we see tragically this boy oppressed by a demon in Matthew 17 that would seemingly throw him into the fire as if to destroy him. The second indicator is supernatural knowledge or strength. So we have examples of some demon-possessed people in Scripture doing things humans can't ordinarily do and knowing things humans don't ordinarily know. And so, for example, the Gerasene demoniac, Mark chapter 5, is a supernatural strength, breaking metal chains. He can't be subdued even by a whole mob. And similarly, there's this demon-possessed girl in Acts 16, and she has a spirit of divination. She was like a real-life fortune teller. The demon was providing her information she would not otherwise know. This leads, though, to the third indicator of demon possession, which would be the distinct presence of another personality. In the movies, you hear the demon-possessed people speak with some deep, dark, evil voice. The Bible does not come with audio, so we don't know if a demon-possessed person's, if their voice box changed. But the demons, at times, clearly took over and commanded control of the person's voice such that they were speaking through the person. That is true. Humans have two parts, body, spirit, with those who are demon-possessed. It's as if this evil spirit hijacked their body and their spirit was muted. However, when this other personality manifested itself, we should point out it was always coherent and rational. And granted, the demons inside could drive a person to a form of madness. Again, the garrison demoniac in Mark chapter 5, he appeared to everybody as just out of his mind. He's screaming day and night. He's gashing himself with stones. But when Jesus stopped and spoke to the indwelling demons, they had a very rational conversation. This is a big distinction to make from those with mental illnesses or brain injuries. If someone gets in a bad car accident and has brain damage, you might say that the lights are on, nobody's home. But with the possessed, it was very clear that the lights were on, someone else was home. A distinct evil personality was home. So to identify demon possession, you would look for all or some combination of these three indicators, some physical affliction plus supernatural knowledge or strength plus the presence of a distinct evil personality in control. 
This is it. It's just a picture we're left to put together through Scripture. That's all we have to go by, and it doesn't say much. But it's worth pointing out, in Christ's day, it, it seemed rather obvious. Demon possession was kind of obvious to people. You have unbelievers. We have Gentiles who have no trouble distinguishing between that. That person just sick. That person is possessed. No special gift was needed to recognize them, it seems. Who told the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7 that her daughter wasn't just sick, but possessed? Who told her that? She just seemed to know. That said, it might make you wonder if demon possession was so obvious, how come you have not seen more of it today? Well, I don't think you should expect to see the same concentration of demon possession that you see in the Gospels. Just think, how many examples of demon possession are there in the Old Testament? Zero. How many examples are there after Acts chapter 19? Zero. So why do all of these examples of demon possession come in this relatively tight time frame around the life of Christ? Do you think that's a coincidence? Probably not. Satan and his fallen angels knew who Jesus was. They knew he was there to overthrow their dominion over the earth. They exist in rebellion against God. We're not going to take that lying down. And so it seems clear that the forces of darkness rallied at that time to oppose the work of Jesus, his kingdom, and the spread of the gospel. Today, Satan and demons still oppose God's kingdom, but I think it's fair to not expect the same density of opposition as we see in Christ's day. I think there is still a lot of legitimate stories coming out of the mission front. But that being said, the peak of the battle was the, the time of Christ. And that intensity will only be matched the days before Christ's return. We see examples of that in the tribulation and revelation. All in all, demon possession is still a reality. Whether you've encountered it or not, you, you still must be careful to avoid false diagnosis and use biblical discernment. Just given the only pictures of real demon possession we have from the scriptures. Again, we're those grounded on the scriptures, not experience. Now, question 14, to to now finish the demon possession discussion. Question 14, so how are believers to deal with demon possession today? If you do encounter it, what, what would you do? How are believers to deal with demon possession today? And last week, we spent all this time exploring all the the wrong ways to deal with it, the the cultural, the superstitious ways to deal with it, exorcisms. You can yell at the demon to leave all you want, but it does not have to listen to you. You can throw around the name of Jesus, but you do not have any special power or authority to compel the demon to leave. You're not an apostle, so you don't have Christ's delegated authority. Why should it listen to you? You can hold up a cross, you can use some holy water, but these relics are powerless So what should you do? Well, the answer is you should pray and share the gospel with the person. That's it. You pray for God to deliver them. You share the gospel with them. That's it. Now, I'm sure most of you or many of you are not terribly satisfied by that answer. Like, that that can't be it. That sounds like there should be more to that. that, But you're not going to get anything more from Scripture. Remember, there are zero prescriptions for dealing with the demon-possessed. But to help put you at ease, let's, let's explore this answer further. You now, first, since we know that demons can only possess unbelievers, I want you to think about the similarities between an unbeliever and a demon-possessed unbeliever. How are they similar? Are they both spiritually dead? Yes. 
Are they both enslaved to sin? Yes. Are they both blinded by Satan? Yes. Are they both awaiting judgment in the sentence of hell? Yes. Are they both unable to save themselves? Are they both lost apart from God's intervention? Yes. Are they both operating in the domain of darkness? Yes. You can keep going. You can see where I'm going with this. That ultimately, they, they still share the same deeper spiritual problem, which is spiritual death. They both have the same ultimate need, which is for God to save them, for Christ to deliver them, for the Spirit to fill them. They have the same need. So which of the two is, is worse? Who's, who's more lost? You probably think the demon-possessed person is more lost, and maybe we could argue for it, but the person might be more afflicted, might suffer more. Are they really more spiritually dead? Is there such a thing as being more dead? Like if someone's dead, they're dead. Can they be more spiritually dead than another person? Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That verse is not talking about demon possession. But it speaks of Satan, the God of this world, and he's blinding the minds of all unbelievers that they might not see and believe the gospel. You might associate that level of blinding only with the demon possessed, but no, Paul says that's actually every unbeliever. All of the lost are described as those enslaved to sin and Satan, blinded by sin and Satan, as we all once were until the Lord opened our eyes, as he goes on in verse 5. But that's the real problem here. Look, if there is an outside evil force hindering salvation and we can't save ourselves, what do we need? We need an outside benevolent force to do something about that to save us. That is God. That's what God does. God must step in to remove the veil from our eyes. And that is precisely what he does in salvation. But we know that God has brought us in on that work. He's sovereign over salvation, the ends and the means, and he's sovereignly called us to be the means of his gospel going out. He's made us responsible to administer the means of salvation to preach the gospel. So how are we called to reach the lost? We can't save anyone who's spiritually dead. We can't bring anyone to life. What has he told us to do? He's told us to preach the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. That's how he will call them to life. We pray, we preach the gospel, and that's it. We pray that God would open their eyes. You beseech the Lord of the harvest to to save them and share the gospel, the means by which they can believe. And that's it. That's all we can do for them. We rinse and repeat. And this same solution applies to the demon-possessed person. We pray for God to intervene. You pray for God to deliver them, for God to cast the demon out and share the gospel. You have to recall what we learned last week from Matthew 12, that even if a person is demon-possessed and and the demon is cast out of them, if they're not thereafter filled with Christ, if if they don't gain the indwelling Holy Spirit, well, their their problems are not solved because we learned the demons can return. Their situation will only get worse. Salvation is the only true, lasting, meaningful deliverance solution to any of our spiritual problems, spiritual death, possession. Salvation is the only hope. 
you have an empty glass, what's the most effective way to get all the air out of that glass? Fill it with water. Likewise, until a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, they will just be empty one way or another. We need salvation. Go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy 2. We were there this morning for scripture reading. I want you to see a couple of verses here. 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is a verse not about demon possession, but you will see how relevant it is to this discussion on spiritual things. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26. I'll start reading. 2 Timothy 2.24, you can catch up. It says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So here we have a passage telling us how we deal with opponents, those who are hostile to us, to the truth, with hostile unbelievers, and how are we supposed to deal with them? Look, not in anger, not quarrelsome. We're to be kind, patient, gentle, yes. But we're not to be silent. We offer a correction. We correct them with the truth, a gentle correction. We speak the truth in love. We let the gospel fly. That is our only hope, that through the power of the gospel, God would intervene and, and turn our enemies into friends by converting them. That's, that's the only hope. The only way we can deal with opponents is if God would convert them. God, here, he must grant them repentance. He must open their eyes. He must set them free from the devil's snare. And again, that, this is not even talking about a demon-possessed person. This is just an, an unbeliever, anyone, us, before salvation, we were like this. All this goes to say that if you're lost, you're lost. God must grant you repentance, whether you're demon-possessed or not. That's what it says, right? And our role, it's kind of simple. We, we pray for God to do that. We share the gospel, the power for that, the means of that. We do that over and over. This is all we are told by God to do. So what else do you need to worry about? After all, if God expects us to do more here in the church today, to do more with those who are demon-possessed, don't you think he would have told us anything about it? One thing. All right, for the demon-possessed, yeah, pray for them, but make sure you hold up a cross to their chest and repeat the name of Jesus three times. Like, just give us anything here, but there's, there's nothing. There's no instruction anywhere for us in the church. And look, I don't fault at all well-meaning Christians who, when they believe they encounter a demon-possessed person, they just operate based off the example of Paul in Acts. And so they, they command the demon to come out in the name of Jesus. I get that. They're, they're just going off of the descriptions in Acts. But we made the case last week that not everything you see in the book of Acts is for today. You should be wary of basing your beliefs or practices on descriptive texts only. And that is the case with casting out demons. You just have to contend with the fact that the Lord gave the church zero instructions or prescriptions on this matter. I think that's explained by the fact that casting out demons was a sign gift given to the apostles but we made that case last week. Now, today, though, we still wield the privilege and power of prayer. God still delivers people through prayer. So that's what we're supposed to do. Even when the apostles were casting out demons, was it their power at work? 
No, it was, it was God's power. And did they still need to rely on God through prayer? Yes, they did. In Mark chapter 9, right after the transfiguration, Jesus encounters this demon-possessed boy, and the disciples could not cast it out. It's the one only example of their failure. But it comes with an explanation. They come up to Jesus after and said, why, why could we not cast this one out? And Mark 9.29, remember what Jesus said. This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, by saying this kind, Jesus seems to indicate that there are some particularly powerful demons who refuse to submit to the delegated authority of the apostles. They all bow instantly to the supreme authority of Jesus, but some might be so rebellious that they do not listen to the delegated authority to the apostles. But God still has all power and authority, and Christ told them they, they still need to resort in faith to prayer to cast them out. And so even though we have not been commissioned as apostles, well, God still has all power and authority. We have the privilege of prayer. We may not have their special gifting, but if you pray in faith, God still hears. He still heals. He still delivers. So, so pray. It's the exact same thing with people who are sick. If you have a loved one, they have stage five cancer. What would you do for them? Would you heal them? You wish you could. You wish you could, but you know that that gifting is gone. You do not have the gifting to say, be healed. But you would pray that if the Lord wills, they would be miraculously healed. That's, we do that all the time. That's not the gift of healing, but that's just praying for someone who is sick. The same thing applies to demon possession. You don't have the sign gift to just command the demon to leave, but pray for them, that God would deliver them, and pray that he would get the glory. But Pray. There's a great story from Martin Luther about all of this in action. He knew this woman who became very ill and suffered from terrible seizures where her hands and feet bent in like horns. She became cold as ice. Her whole body swelled. No doctor was able to treat her, and they feared it was the work of a demon. When Luther saw her, he did not rebuke the demon, but he prayed that God would rebuke the demon and that God would command it to leave. He then turned to the bystanders and said this, quote, She is plagued of the devil and the body, but the soul is safe and shall be preserved. Therefore, let us give thanks to God and pray for her. End quote. And Luther then prayed this, quote, Lord God, Heavenly Father, who has commanded us to pray for the sick, we beseech thee through Jesus Christ, thy only Son, that thou would deliver this, thy servant, from her sickness and from the hands of the devil. Spare, O Lord, her soul which, together with her body, thou hast purchased and redeemed from the power of sin, of death, and of the devil. End quote. And after this, the sick woman said, Amen. The following night, she rested. The following morning, she was completely delivered of her disease and her sickness. She was back to normal. So what happened here? Was a demon truly responsible for her sickness? Was she just sick? We don't know. We, we can't know. But either way, Luther exemplified the right response. Just pray. Beseech the Lord for mercy. Pray that God would intervene, that God would deliver one way or another. You know that the prayer of the righteous can accomplish much. We are righteous in Christ. But pray in faith. Trust God. This is your weapon against demon possession. We'll leave that there, bringing to an end what the Bible says about demon possession. 
this concept of possession, it's, it's important to talk about. We've seen it so many times in Matthew's gospel. When we get back into Matthew, we're going to see it several more times. So we need to be make sense of it. I, I trust and hope now you are better equipped to do just that, to make sense of demon possession as we see it in Christ's day, however we might see it today. And we have one last question to cover, though, to finish up here. And this brings the discussion back to us, to believers. And a demon possession is not directly related to us as those in Christ cannot be possessed by demons, but we sure can be oppressed by demons. There's still a threat. So what does the Bible say about that? So we'll make this our last question, number 15. How are believers to deal with demon oppression today? Not possession, but oppression. How are believers to deal with demon oppression today? We've said enough that demons cannot possess believers, but that does not mean they cannot externally oppress believers. What would that even look like? I'll give you three quick words. Tempt, test, persecute. Tempt, test, persecute. That's how Satan and demons can affect believers. Just think of all the ways Satan afflicted Jesus while he was on earth. And it's pretty much the same thing. They can tempt, they can test, they can persecute. First, there's temptation. Believer, uh, demons can tempt believers to sin. They can do that through influences, through circumstances. They're not entering your mind and controlling you, but externally, they can certainly tempt believers to sin. And they let your flesh do the rest. They know how the flesh works. They, you just need temptation. Secondly, there's testing. Demons can be responsible for some of the trials and tribulations you encounter in life, even though we don't have eyes to tell which is which. We know it's possible. It certainly happened with Job as he lost his health, wealth, and children due to demonic circumstances. This also reminds me of Luke 22, verse 31, where right before the crucifixion, Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat to test your faith, to put him through a fiery trial. That was in reference to Peter denying Jesus three times. And so when that happened, all the circumstances that contributed to that were actually of demonic origin. And then third, there's persecution, which is related to testing, but this is confirmed in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, where Satan, and by extension demons, are pictured as roaring lions, and their activity leads to experiences of suffering for believers through persecution. So we're led to believe that at times, persecution for the faith is of demonic origin. We know that a real spiritual warfare rages on where you can be tempted, tested, and persecuted through the unseen influence of demons. If this is the case, well then how are we to respond? How are believers to deal with demon oppression today? And for the sake of time, we're, we're just going to laser in on the number one most important and poignant passages in Scripture on spiritual warfare. I'm sure you know it. It's Ephesians chapter 6. So go ahead and turn there now. Keep following along. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. While you're turning, I want to give you some background here. You know, in the mid-50s, this would be the, the A.D. 50s, not the 1950s. In the mid-50s, Paul spent over two years in Ephesus. He was nurturing the new church there because it was such a strategic church, but such a challenging city. 
one of the challenges Christianity faced in Ephesus was its intense paganism and idol worship. Ephesus housed the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And people there fiercely worshipped and guarded this fertility goddess. Additionally, the practice of magic and the occult was rampant in Ephesus. The selling of magic scripts was big business. And finally, Ephesus totally bought into emperor worship. They worshipped the Roman emperor as the son of God, and they had not one but three temples devoted to him. And so all this involvement in idolatry and the occult, occult rather, no doubt explains why Ephesus had quite a concentration of demonic activity. Paul encountered several demon-possessed persons during his time in Ephesus, and he cast them out. We learn next, 19, Ephesus even had their own local team of Jewish exorcists who were not successful, but this was part of their culture. Spiritual warfare was severe there. Now, several years later, Paul writes this little letter to that church we call Ephesians. He's giving them all these instructions for them, for them in their context of how to follow the Lord. So naturally, in this letter, we would expect Paul to deal with this massive issue of spiritual warfare, especially in Ephesus. And what do you know? He does. Way more than Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, he has the most to say about spiritual warfare. That makes sense. And just given the demonic background of, of Ephesus, what would you expect Paul to say in this letter to them? You might expect him to pass on the how-to of casting out demons. All right now, here's what you need to know. Here's how to do it. Here's what you need to say. Here's what you need to do. Here's how I did it. You might think he's going to give them pointers on battling demons, like he did as an apostle. But surprisingly, Paul does not mention casting out demons at all. He does mention demons and spiritual warfare, but his prescriptions for the church come not as you might think, unless you're familiar with this. But let's, let's read it. Let's get familiar with it. Ephesians 10, uh, 6. I'm going to first read straight through 10 through 17, then we'll make a few comments. Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. It says here at the end, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, verse 14. Having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. All right, I trust many of you are familiar with this passage, the armor of God. It's very interesting. Paul makes our enemy crystal clear. Verse 12, it's, it's not flesh and blood. It's not human. It's heavenly. All these descriptions used in verse 12 are used elsewhere for demons. And he makes it explicit in verse 11, where he points out the prince of demons, namely the devil. Their desire is to take us down. 
to stumble us, to pierce our faith with their flaming arrows of temptation. And so what's our prescribed response in all this? It's just to defend. This is all defense. Stand your ground. Stand firm, which is mentioned three times here. There's no offense mentioned. Even the sword is used defensively. There's no mention of going on a counteroffensive, of going on the attack, of casting out demons, rebuking evil spirits. This is the perfect place for Paul to finally tell us how to cast out and rebuke evil spirits. No mention of it. It's all about just standing firm in the Lord to be safe. Now, throughout Ephesians, this contrast is all the stronger because in chapters 4 through 6, he's been telling us how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Five times drawing on this metaphor of walking, walk in wisdom, walk in love, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, so on. It communicates activity, work, effort. Then we get to chapter 6. We get to one of the most important subjects, spiritual warfare. And now we're expecting Paul to say something like this. You know, walk in warfare, walk in strength, walk in power. But no, there's no more walking involved. He switches metaphor from walking to standing. And now it's all about standing firm. Three times, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. Defend, resist, stand your ground. That is what spiritual warfare is all about. This is confirmed elsewhere. James 4, 7 says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. First Peter 5, 8, 9, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith. So Peter, Paul, and James all agree, you need to resist. But how do you resist? What makes Ephesians 6 so special is he tells us in great length how you actually resist. Because it's a metaphor. How do you resist? Well, it's by wearing this armor of God. This is the means of defense God has given you. And his armor is pretty strong. It is flaming arrow proof. That's what armor is after all. Armor is for defense, not offense. Paul does not describe any weaponry used for taking the fight to the enemy. Once again, even the sword is used defensively. This covers you from head to toe. Now, when you study this armor of God, a lot of preachers like to break it up and go into detail on each and every little piece. And you could do that. There are nuances to learn from each piece of armor. But holistically, the the armor of God is, is synonymous. It's one thing. Each piece is describing the same thing in a different way. What are the operative words behind this armor in this passage? This is truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. That's the armor. And when you consider this, you see how all these words are really describing different facets of the same thing. These are overlapping concepts. It's all just different ways of describing the truths of the gospel. Gospel truth. The armor of God is just the truths of the gospel. It's salvation by faith, by the word of God, by the righteousness of Christ. This is your given defense. It's truth, the truth of God, his word, the gospel, Christ. This is huge for you to realize because when you do, uh, you learn how to wage spiritual war. What are the commands here? What are we commanded to do? The actual commands, verse 11, verse 13, is to take up and put on. That's it. Take up, put on. You must take up and put on the armor that you might resist. 
Because after all, what, what good is a suit of armor if you don't put it on? But each and every day, verse 10, to be strong in the Lord, you must take up and put on the gospel. All these truths. The fact that you're commanded to do so means it does not happen automatically. Which means you are vulnerable to defeat and injury unless you take it up and put it on. Now, it's still a metaphor. How do you do this? Simply by remembering, recalling, relying on these truths. Satan's power over sin and death has already been overcome. The battle is over. Victory has been won. But the devil still schemes and we are still assaulted. Our faith can be stumbled. So how do we resist these attacks through the word? Battles of spiritual temptation still exist, but you can overcome them by what? By just trusting in God, relying on his truth. You recall what is true. You cling to it. You submit to it. You obey it. What did Jesus do to overcome the attacks of the devil in the wilderness? How did he resist in that evil day? Simply by picking up the sword, the spirit, using scripture to defend error with what is true. And the devil fled. You have to realize that spiritual warfare is a truth war. It has been from the beginning. The battleground is your mind. That's where spiritual warfare is waged, in your mind. The enemy seeks to plant deceiving thoughts there. And you will either succumb to them or resist them through God's word. I've saved one key verse here for the end, but maybe the most uh, powerful verse on this issue. 2 Corinthians 11.3. Paul's fear for the Corinthians, an equally pagan and idolatrous place. 2 Corinthians 11.3. Paul says to them that I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's what he's afraid of, that their minds would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And that would come through Satan's deception. That, that's spiritual warfare. That's it right there. The enemy wants to lead your minds away from devotion to Christ. And that battle is waged in your mind. This is why you must take up arms of the truth against falsehood. That's correlated with 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. It says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You see it. That the imagery here is of a castle siege, but it's clearly describing a battlefield of your mind, your thoughts, your thinking. Will you take every thought captive to what is true, the obedience of Christ, or will you let the enemy persuade your thinking away from him? This is a mental battle, and to win requires aligning our thinking to God's word, what he has revealed, what is true. Satan and demons seek to distract us from Christ and deceive mankind through worldly wisdom, the solution is rather simple. You take up, you put on the truths of the gospel each and every day. You do Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Look again, if, if there is any place 
to teach us to verbally battle demons, to cast them out, to rebuke evil spirits, this would be it. Ephesians 6. But that's not what he says. How do you deal with demon oppression? You just stand firm in the truth. And again, it's no coincidence that these instructions are followed up the very next verse with an admonition to pray. Verse 18, he goes on to say, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. Look, we are not apostles. We're not equipped with signs and wonders. But God has given us everything we need to wage this spiritual warfare, to stand firm in the midst of it. Through God's word, through Christ's atonement, through the Spirit's indwelling, we're secure. And as we fix our minds on the truth, there's nothing the enemy can do to take us down. And so I pray you rest in this truth. C.S. Lewis rightly observed that Christians can fall into two errors concerning demons, either pretend they don't exist or become hyper-obsessed with them. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. We want to avoid both errors. And as a final thought in this three-part series then, uh, just encourage you not to fall into spiritual warfare chaos. We've said demons are real. Our warfare with them is real. But we are never meant to obsess over them or live in fear of them. In reality, you can't see this enemy. You don't even know when you're being afflicted. So tell me, when you're being tempted, how do you know whether that temptation is coming from a demon or coming from your own flesh? You don't know. You can't know. It also doesn't matter. It's futile to speculate, and the response is the same. So be it. You are to run the race of faith. Stand firm in the truth. Equip yourself with what is true. Cling to it each and every day. The takeaway here is to remind yourself of the gospel daily. Each morning as you wake up, you should run through and rehearse what is true, who you are, what you believe in Christ, in that mind which is the battleground. You recall you are a sinner. You are worthy of judgment. You're not righteous, certainly not righteous enough to merit heaven. On your own, apart from Christ, you have no ground to stand. You can't be good enough. But Jesus is. He's, he's real. This was the God-man come down. He, he lived a perfectly righteous life, free from all sin. And yet he still died on that cross, and he was up there for me, not for himself, for my sin. He was bearing all the weight of my guilt, my shame on that cross to wipe it all away. It's all been put away, all my wrongdoing. And in his resurrection, he proved total victory over my sin and Satan. And we share that victory in him. This all comes just by faith. We're united to this Christ by faith. Everything he did, everything he is, is ours by faith, by union with him. And so you ask yourself, this is all crazy. Do I believe this? Is this true? But yes, will you trust him? Will you submit to him? Will you obey him? Will you follow him another day? And as you do, you're secure. You are firm on solid ground in the truth. This is the pathway to victory against sin, against Satan and demons. Stay on this track. This is how you can resist the evil one in the evil day. Let's be equipped with this truth. We'll leave you with a powerful truth to remember. 1 John 5, 19 through 20. One of the last exhortations of one of the last epistles written to the church. It says this. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of of the evil one. 
We know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And as we are in him, that is our life as well. Let's rest in him as we stand firm. Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, as we reflect on these these messages, we just have to thank you for your truth. And your word is truth. As, as Christ our Savior prayed to you in John 17, 17, he prayed for the church that you would sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's what he said. It's what we need to believe and live, that you have given us what we need for life and godliness. We long for the miraculous, to see signs and wonders. We praise you when we do. But let us not overlook just the wonder of and the miracle of the scriptures we hold in our hand, written, preserved, over 2,000 years. We have too many copies to count. We have the miracle. We're holding it. We don't worship this book. We worship the God of it. But it's what you have given us to know you rightly, to stand firm, to stand our ground against our enemies, be it the sin of our own flesh or the, the afflictions of Satan and demons. And so I, I simply pray again that you, you convict us and ground us in your truth, that these uh, truths of the gospel would uh, wash over our minds each and every day. Help us to build this practice of rehearsing gospel truth every morning, every evening. And we need to be calibrated every day that we can walk straightly, rightly, following the Savior, firm in him. We long for him to come. We have in him the hope of glory. Until that day, make us stand firm in him and his gospel. We pray this all to Christ's glory. His name we pray. Amen.